So for many of us, when we hear of the Dharma, or we hear of mindfulness, or however it is that we come to begin to practice meditation, we often are given a technique to use to try to either create an understanding or create an experience of mindfulness. And we often make, you know, we're very sincere, so we make a very diligent effort with this technique, hoping for or believing that the result will be some kind of distinctive uh, meditative experience that's going to be uh, hopefully transformative. And that's not how it works. (laughs) It usually takes a lot of trial and error. It usually takes a lot more than techniques. It often takes more than one teacher, teaching, or tradition. And it isn't until later, after we've tried what you might think is every wrong way of doing it, that we finally hit upon something that seems to be a little more balanced and a little more uh, effective for us. And it's not so much that we don't have dramatic, sometimes, uh, experiences. That, That can happen. But we soon come to understand that that's not really the goal, but rather inhabiting a mindful life or living a mindful lifestyle grows kind of unnoticed. So tonight I want to speak about awareness as a lifestyle. And most of the retreat, when I use the word awareness, I could simultaneously or equally be using the word mindfulness. And generally speaking, mindfulness, awareness, same. But tonight I'm going to make a distinction because I'm going to talk about awareness as the activity of the five spiritual faculties. One of which is mindfulness. So in this case I'm going to be talking about mindfulness as a mental factor, a mental muscle if you will, And I'm going to be talking about the activity of five mental factors being the activity of awareness. Okay? So, a little bit different. Utejaniya has said that we should consider meditation and the development of wisdom more like a marathon than a sprint. But this confronts our conditioning because we live, you know, in a very fast-paced, Uh, society and lifestyle and we have the conditioning and often have an expectation conscious or or unconscious that we can get things quickly immediately and the the digital lifestyle seems to point that way but it's just not possible in Dharma understanding you can read but it's very difficult to, and it takes time to, transform the workings of the mind or to transform the conditioning that we have acquired 
and to bring it more in alignment with the way things are, and which will which will be more liberating or more or less causeless suffering for us. So I want to talk about these five faculties because they are called the spiritual faculties or the five controlling faculties. They're the five factors of mind that are most responsible for the unfolding of our heart as we practice. So I'll mention them and then I'll speak about each one. So the first is sadha, which is usually translated as faith, but it means uh, trusting. The second is wiriya, often mentioned as, translated as energy or effort, but it manifests as the persevering quality of mind. The third is sati, which is mindfulness, serves the function of remembering, and manifests as observing. Samadhi is the fourth, which is often translated as concentration, which is, as I will describe, pretty misleading, actually. It means, more accurately, the stabilizing of the mind, the collecting and or stabilizing of the mind. And the fifth factor is panya, or wisdom, which refers to understanding wisely. Now, the interesting relationship between these five factors of mind is that they are related uh, in a few ways. They are cause; they are ca- they have a cause-effect relationship. With faith, we're willing to make effort. With effort, we become mindful. With more continuity of mindfulness the mind becomes stabilized, and the stabilized mind sees and understands things more clearly. That clarity of seeing, that wisdom, in turn, supports greater faith. And in this way, there's a cause-effect relationship between the first, the second, the second, the third, the third, fourth. And the maturation of the development and the maturing of these faculties occurs cyclically. Just a little bit of faith, a little bit of energy, a little bit of mindfulness leads to a little bit of wisdom which leads to a little more faith, a little more energy, a little more mindfulness. And it keeps growing in this way. So it's a very gradual, cyclic, uh, causal relationship. mature awareness that we're looking to develop here is really um, a kind of a relaxed, interested observation of the present moment, recognizing what's going on from a place of confidence, clarity, and understanding. And with that little statement, I've mentioned all all these mental factors and then some as the wholesome qualities of mind which are activated with mindfulness. So the first of these factors is sada, usually translated as faith. And the distinctive characteristic of sada is that it seeks 
goodness. It seeks the good. It notices the good. It desires or aspires to the good. And what that means is that when we are exposed to some teachings or some person and we recognize the goodness within them, whether it's just wholesomeness or purity or sincerity or truthfulness or clarity or compassion, whatever it is, you just see there's, there's some goodness in this person in their heart, in their mind, in the way they live, their integrity. Faith is what sees that and aspires to that. So, back in the mid-70s, after surviving university, I was in recovery, living in a hippie commune in central Maine, And we were there because we were all um, dedicated aspirants to Grateful Dead concerts. (laughs) (laughs) And this was our reason for being there. And our lifestyle was partaking of the sacrament as often as necessary (laughs) and trying to get tickets to the next series of shows. (laughs) Up to that point, I had no interest in meditation. I didn't know anybody who meditated. I didn't have any spiritual... Well, that is kind of a spiritual direction, but... Um, I didn't have any understanding of Buddhism. I, didn't, I wasn't religious or spiritual, and I was just... Uh, that was my life. And at one point, one of the women in the commune saw this book called Beginning to See, written by this fellow, Sujata. Shuddhata was a young fellow that was practicing in India at the Burmese Vihara at the time that Joseph was practicing. He wrote a book called Beginning to See. It was all little one-liners with little string drawings of uh, about, about mindfulness. She got the book. She read through it. She felt inspired by it, wrote to the address in the back of where she could get more information and was told that there was a retreat, a mindfulness retreat, happening in Bucksport, Maine, just an hour and a half from where we lived, and that there was going to be a two-week segment where new students could go. So she told me that she was going down to the coast on Bucksport, and I thought she said something like she was going on a holiday. (laughs) So I said, that sounds like fun. Can I go? So I decided to go. So we went to, we got in the car, and we paid a paid a fee, went in the car, got to the um, Bucksport, and it was uh, being held at an old Catholic monastery, actually, on the coast. And uh, we got there mid-afternoon, and we walked in, and nobody around. But there was an auditorium, or actually the chapel was on the right, and there was a dining room on the left, and there was a note on the door that said, new arrivals will meet at 5 o'clock. So we looked at the schedule. We looked at the chapel door and there was a schedule. You know, it was wake up, four o'clock. <laughs> it was earlier back then. You know, sit, walk, sit, breakfast. Sit, walk, sit, walk, lunch. Sit, walk, sit, walk, sit, tea. Sit, walk, 7.30, talk. 8.30, walk, sit, further sleep. We looked at each other and said, well, 
It looks like we have at least an hour a day to talk. <laughs> really, we have an hour a day to listen. So we were there, paid our, paid our fee, and came in to what was the last two weeks of the first three-month course taught by Jack, Joseph, and Sharon. And it was about 50 people that had been there for two and a half months, and we were there for just the last two weeks. So I set up back, I leaned against the piano, and it was torture. <laughs> it was worse than torture. The body was in no shape to sit still, and it wasn't used to sitting on the floor, and the mind was detoxing, or whatever you want to call it, but it was, it was not happy doing nothing. And it was just... There wasn't anything pleasant about it, except in the evenings when I heard the Dharma talks. When I heard the Dharma talks, I listened, and it was as if I heard for the first time what I'd always known and believed. I'd never read a Dharma book, didn't know anybody, practiced, but when I heard the teachings, it was so obvious, it was so easy to agree, to understand, and to just take it on as, well, in faith that this is this is the way it is. This is the way it is. And there was some resonance with what was already in my heart, mind, and that was the that was the hook. That was the even though the practice was extremely difficult, you know, I and I didn't I didn't understand anything, really. We went back to the commune at the end of the retreat and we had been in two weeks of silence. And nobody at the commune had been in silence. <laughs> so we got back there and everything was the same. Same people doing the same thing. And we too. And yet, we were seeing it from a completely different perspective. Now we were seeing it through the eyes of a little bit calmer, a little bit clearer, and through the lens of the Dharma. What, what Dharma we had gotten through the talks. And we looked and it was just like, what are we doing here? <laughs> really? Well, it was, I mean, these were our friends, people we'd been living with, so we, we lived there. But it was the beginning of our gradual transition out, and over the next few years we were, we were soon gone. But that was the key. That was the opening. That was the hook. Now, Rodney Smith, who's a teacher here in Seattle, now it's 10 years ago or so, he reminded me that soon after I went to that retreat, they bought the Meditation Center in Massachusetts, I went there to be on staff. I heard about it, so I just said, I'm going. Went. And one of the first days I was there, working there, Rodney was on staff at the time. We were up in the attic, insulating one of the dormitory rooms, the ceiling. And we were having a disc. Now, I've done one two-week retreat. And we were having a discussion about Nirvana. <laughs> so he reminded me that at that time I said to him I have with utter unshakable confidence I have no doubt in this lifetime I'll realize the Dhamma I had no idea what I was talking about <laughs> I didn't know what was involved but I felt that confident I was that trusting of the practice that I had been exposed to and the teachings that I heard 
that in my mind, there was no doubt. That's what faith feels like. Not, not that you have to have that kind of no doubt, but it sees the potential. It sees the good. It recognizes something that's within ourselves that we can aspire to. Even if we don't know what it involves. Faith doesn't involve knowledge. doesn't involve wisdom. doesn't involve reading all the books first. It's a heartfelt connection that, that you realize, that you can recognize in yourself. So it is said that this kind of experience clarifies your spiritual objective. I didn't know what happened. I just knew I went to a retreat and was like, wow, okay. And as soon as I heard that they had a, had bought a center to make a meditation center, I, I went. I just knew I wanted to be there. And that was, that was the beginning of here I am. So when it says that faith clarifies your spiritual objective, I think there was an initial, for me, an initial clarification that my life was going nowhere. It was really spinning gears, it was treading water, it wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't doing anything. Well, I was having a lot of fun, but there was no future in it, there was no direction to it, there was no integrity or sincerity to it. And this practice that I heard, or the time I heard about, the practice I took out, offered that. It's just like, here is a direction in life. Here is a path in life. Here is a purpose in life. Here is a, an activity of life that's beneficial, that's good, that, that would be good for me also. So, that's what happened. It also gives us not only a direction, but it fuels an aspiration. It's not just we see it, we see a path. It's like we want to we want to walk that path. We want to follow it. And we have some level of confidence or some level of trust in it. You know when you get a, a thousand a, a thousand piece a jigsaw puzzle to put together, the first thing you do is find all the edges and you put the edge together, right? And once you got the edge together, you feel confident that, okay, now all I got to do is just fill it in, right? <laughs> I mean, but the hardest part is filling it in. Well, faith is like that. It's like getting the frame, and you think, good, all I got to do is just fill it in. That's when the hard part starts. Because faith, this kind of bright faith, or this kind of inspired faith, or this kind of exuberant faith that comes from a teacher or experience or something like that, it isn't very stable. It's, it's susceptible to all kinds of doubt. And so as we practice, and the first the first major hurdle in practice is to overcome our doubt and to practice in such a way that we, first of all, it's not that we just kind of skirt around doubt or try to believe in the Dharma or believe in the practice. We actually have to do the practice because doubt uh, stops practice. Doubt interferes with practice. It, it just paralyzes us from practice. I spoke about it the other night. And if we keep practicing, we will expose every filament of doubt that we have. Doubt in ourselves, doubt in the teacher, doubt in the path, doubt in the Buddha, doubt in everything. 
But if we keep practicing, we will overcome or we will see through that doubt. But if we stop to think about it, we'll be paralyzed. And so the path of practice is to expose doubts and the path of insight is to understand the nature of doubt and the function of the path or the function of awakening is to uproot doubt from the mind. And this is the way it happens. So it's said that as we have, as we come upon this faith and trusting, our whole outlook improves. Without it, it can be a slog. If we don't, we can read, we can know a lot of Dharma. But if we don't have this spark of faith, it's just a, it's just knowledge. There isn't a personal uplifting to it. So what I saw for myself is that after that uh, exposure, I, you know, went to work at the meditation center and did a lot, started doing more practice. And I think it was, you know, it was about, I was, I was there about 10 years doing retreats like this. And it was repair work. It was just repair work from, well, you know, dysfunctional family and the conditioning of growing up, draftable age in the Vietnam War and things like that. So it was just kind of cleaning up my act, you know, cleaning and stop using drugs and just started to have a purpose in life and just started to be more careful and meditate, just got a little bit clearer. And this is part of the aspiration to seek the goodness within my within my own heart. <coughs> with this kind of faith, with this kind of aspiration to seek the goodness or to manifest the goodness within our own heart that we're that we know is there but haven't yet realized. We're willing to make effort. And whatever effort we make, whether it's to read or to study or to go to retreats in this in this tradition, it requires effort. Nothing is accomplished without effort. You can't bake bread without making an effort, let alone purify your heart. So it is said that right effort or balanced effort may be the topic that the Buddha spoke more about than anything else. And I pondered just why that might be so. And I think it's because there are so many ways to get hung up with wrong effort. Not making enough effort, making too much effort. And to find right effort or balanced effort is an ongoing thing. It's not like you get it and then you just have it. I was talking to someone in the group, one of the groups today, about... You know, when we, when our energy or effort is erratic or not steady, we can make great effort for a while, and that may be half the sitting, and then we kind of cruise to the finish, cruise to the bell. Or it can be make great effort for one year and fade away the next year. Or it, even in the, even in, in the sitting, it can be on, on, off, on, on, off. On, off, 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 off. <laughs> and 
you know, it's just when when we're monitoring our effort erratically, there just isn't that continuity. And what I've seen over 45 years now is that, oh, balanced effort really comes down to being present every moment. If you're present every moment, your energy will be balanced. When we're not present, the energy is not balanced. It's said that energy uh, manifests as non-collapse. Think about it. You know, you come in, you sit down, and you're breathing in, breathing out, and noticing, 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 until you get to something and you go, that's collapse. You know, the energetic collapse of, not just the body, but the energetic collapse of our interest, our energy, our willingness, our connection to the present moment. And the mind just collapses. And if the mind collapses, the body goes with it. And so, we, you know, we've got a lot of posture stuff to work with. It's not the posture. It's the energy. It's the continuity of the efforting. If you make too much effort, you'll get tired. You'll, you'll get exhausted and collapse. If you don't make enough, you'll be collapsed. So it's learning how to titrate our energy to just what's needed in this moment to recognize the present moment's experience. But even though we know we have an aspiration, we have a direction, we have a faith in, in practice, we know the, what kind of effort to make, it's said that the proximate cause for making the effort is having a sense of urgency. So even though you may read the book, hear the teacher, have the faith, have an aspiration, if there's no sense of urgency to do it now, you won't make the effort. That's why I like to ask people when they come on retreat, why? Why are you here? Why this retreat now? And of course, some of you have been practicing for five years, ten years, twenty years, more. In every in every moment, or in every retreat, or in every juncture of our of our Dharma life, we have to ask ourselves, what's what's the urgency here? And if there's and it will change, you know, as we go along. But if there's no urgency, we won't practice. We'll we'll be slack in our effort. <coughs> so it's said that, you know, the the Bodhisattva, uh, Siddhartha, when he was living in his father's royal household, was very protected from seeing anything that was suffering or dukkha. But it was his karmic destiny to leave the confines of his father's uh, protection realm, so to speak, and to see, to see, I mean to understand, uh, a sick person, an elderly person, and a corpse. And when he saw that, when he when he got it, what that was, not just seeing with the eyes, but seeing with the wisdom eye, he understood that, oh, this is suffering. And all beings suffer like this. It aroused his uh, not just urgency, but uh, his faith and a sense of urgency but it also aroused something else because the fourth 
these, these three, the corpse, the elderly, and the sick person, are called heavenly messengers. There was a fourth heavenly messenger. And the fourth heavenly messenger was an ascetic, uh, something like a monk, walking quietly through the village, getting his alms, or um, seemingly unperturbed by the chaos and the activity and the hubbub around him. And he was told that this is someone who is devoting their life to trying to uh, understand life and the causes of suffering and trying to be free of suffering. So this, having seen that possibility, the Bodhisattva was both inspired by what he saw to aspire to freedom, liberation, but he also saw that it was possible. And so, you know, if you just see and understand aging, sickness, and death, you could get depressed. (laughs) You know, you could get pretty bummed out, like, you know, welcome to life. You'll soon age, get sick, and die. What? Like, that's not, like, really inspiring. Until you see someone, until you hear the possibility that we can do something with this life to really make best use of this life, to really come to understand something about this life, and to ennoble our life, and to be of a, a, uh, value to yourself and others. So seeing that kept the balance in the Bodhisattva's mind from having seen the, the dukkha of life, or the suffering of life. So this Pasada, or the Samvega, is the uh, sense of urgency. But the Pasada is a sense of confidence and serenity that to, to move into the path of awakening, to make that effort. It's not difficult to be aware or mindful, Saito says, it's difficult to maintain it continuously. And for this you need right effort, which is simply perseverance. We've all seen today that we definitely need perseverance because we're confronted with difficult mental states, body, body experiences, the mind is all over the place. So we need to be willing to just again and again and again start over, somebody was mentioning today in one of the groups. Just start over. Just got the mantra of start over, start over. But we have to start over because we get off track so much. So we need to be patient with the conditioning of our heart and mind, which takes us off to the ditch, off in the ditch on the left, off in the ditch on the right. We get hung up and tied up and entangled in all kinds of things. And so we need to be patient with this conditioning because we can't turn the mind around instantly or overnight. It takes perseverance. So right effort is the, somewhere in the middle between patience and perseverance. If we try too hard, if we try too strenuously, if we're too ambitious or too impatient to get on with and get through practice, we just agitate the mind. On the other hand, if we don't make the effort, we just fall into lethargy, sloth and torpor, inertia, and we won't make any effort either. So, 
effort or energy as one of the faculties has to be balanced with concentration or stillness, tranquility, the fourth factor. So these five factors have to all be developed, brought into some maturity, but also kept in balance. If we're making too much effort, it's mindfulness that will notice and calm down. If we're not making enough effort, it's mindfulness that will notice to bring up the effort. Mindfulness is the balancing factor of these other five, of these other four. One of my one of my spiritual teachers of the last century. Boy, it seems funny to talk about the last century, but you know what I mean. Um, was uh, Carlos Castaneda and his teacher Don Juan, and probably most of you have heard something about it. Anyway. Uh, Actually, Don Juan was really wise. Carlos Castaneda learned a lot of Dharma, good Dharma, uh, from from Don Juan. So in one of the books, I can't remember which one, Don uh, Carlos was writing about Don Juan teaching him about right effort. So he writes, Don Juan had assured me that in order to accomplish the feat of making myself miserable, I had to work in a most intense fashion, and that that was absurd. I had now come to realize that I could work just as hard in making myself complete and strong and whole. The truth is in what one emphasizes, he had said. We either make ourselves miserable or we make ourselves strong. The amount of work is the same. It doesn't seem that way to us initially. We think we are the way we are. We don't see that we're making all this effort to make ourselves miserable. But as we practice and we uncover what we're holding on to, and we learn to let go, then all the energy that it has taken to hold on to these hurts, to these fears, to these, you know, self-criticism, takes a lot of energy to hold on to these ideas about ourselves. And as we expose them and let go of them, all that energy that was holding on to them is now available to live in the present moment. It takes energy to practice. But it's the one thing you can do in life that if you expend energy, you'll get more in return. Whereas most of the times, if you expend energy, it's gone. But in mindfulness practice or wisdom development, if you expend energy, you'll get more energy. So, with trust or faith, with having an aspiration, having a direction, a spiritual direction, and we make some effort because there's a sense of urgency, then in this practice we make effort to be mindful. And mindfulness is the preeminent wholesome factor of mind that we work with. Because if mindfulness is aroused, all the other wholesome mental factors come with it. Okay? So the other wholesome mental factors, faith, uh, modesty, uh, tranquility, equanimity, tranquility, uh, tranquility, uh, lightness of mind, a sense of uh, straightness of mind or integrity, wisdom, they all come with the arising of mindfulness. So we talk about mindfulness a lot. Now I'm talking about mindfulness now as 
a mental factor, not as the activity of awareness. So mindfulness is a mental factor. We all have it. It's not like some people <clears throat> have it and can be mindful. It's like we all have it. It's like some of those muscles that you don't know you have. You know, you have those muscles. But if you've never exercised them, they aren't available to you. And you can't use them in your everyday life. And, of course, to, to, to undertake a training to find those muscles hurts. It hurts to, to do the exercises that exercise muscles that you never knew you had. But in time, if you develop them, those muscles will be available to you in the ordinary activities of life. So too with mindfulness. While we do specific exercises, practice mindfulness, to develop mindfulness, a lot of other things come with it, and then they become available to us, or mindfulness becomes available to us in our life. We don't notice it. We don't have to do mindfulness exercises all the time. We do some, and then we have some benefit. Okay. So mindfulness, you remember when I talk about awareness, I say, awareness is remembering to recognize the present moment's experience. Did you ever wonder how you can remember what you don't remember? Right? It's a muscle. Remembering like that is a muscle. And it's the mindfulness muscle. Because the function of mindfulness is to remember. And it's to remember, just like we're, we're trying to do, is to remember be here, observe this, know this. And while the function of mindfulness is to remember, mindfulness manifests as observing. So sometimes we just say, observe the present moment. But what we mean is, don't forget, remember <laughs> to observe. This is the function of mindfulness and the manifestation of mindfulness. The characteristic of mindfulness is called not floating away, not wobbling. Now, what that really means is, if you pay attention to your experience, you'll see that more often than not, when something happens in the environment or in the body and or in the mind and you have an experience, we almost immediately start thinking about it. We have an opinion about it, we have a view about it, we know what we want know what we want to do with it, we like it, we don't like it, we 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 get carried away thinking about this experience rather than being with the experience, meaning connecting with it and sustaining our attention on it so we can see and see with the mind this experience. Instead, we just get a glimpse of it and then we just start thinking about it. We're carried away on a stream of thought, rather than actually staying with this experience, whether it's physical sensation or an emotional thing or a mental state. So when we don't float away, when we're able to connect and sustain our attention on the experience, observing it, this is how we become intimate with it. This is why mindfulness or awareness has this activity of becoming intimate with our experience. Because we're not just thinking about it, we're actually touching it and staying in touch with it. 
And it's mindfulness that does that, the factor of mindfulness. It's also said that there are three proximate causes for mindfulness. Listen carefully, because if you don't feel like you're mindful enough, it's got to be because one of these are present. Okay. Now, we know that if there's no object, there can't be any awareness. So, having an object is one of the proximate causes for mindfulness. Well, that's the easy one. (laughs) The second one is having strong perception. Now, I've mentioned perception is the activity of mind that recognizes what this moment's experience is. If we've never seen it before, we, we still, we know that we've experienced something, even if we don't know what it is. And when we experience something that's familiar, we have a name for it. Right? So, as our mindfulness remembers to observe the present moment, connecting and sustaining the mind on the present moment, we touch it. And when we touch the present moment with the mind, with that mind that observes, we feel it. We, we come to taste this moment with the mind. We taste its unique flavor. Every, every experience has its own unique flavor. You know, tingling in the body is different than aching. Aching is different than hardness. Hardness is different than twisting. Just as frustration is dis- different than impatience. Impatience is different than depression. Depression is different than ecstasy, of course. But each one of these mental states, physical, thing, physical uh, experiences, they have their own flavor. This is called the sabhava. It's unique flavor. And it takes remembering to observe by connecting and sustaining in order to taste it. Now this clarity of tasting is perception. Clear perception recognizes this is the flavor of what's being experienced. If we don't taste that flavor, if we can't steady the attention to land on and to stay on, the present moment's experience, we can't taste it. We'll only have a thought about it rather than a mindful awareness of it. And that taste is essential. It's the beginning of wisdom. Without that, we don't really know what that experience is. We only know what we think about it. And this is, this is a big difference in mindfulness practice leading to insight. We want to taste the experience to know for ourselves, rather than just remember what we've been told how to think about it. That's how we begin to see our conditioning. That's how we begin to let go of our conditioning. That's how we begin to develop our own wisdom is to taste life for ourselves, clearly recognizing its flavor, each moment, each moment of life. <clears throat> so I'd been in Burma, after I'd done 10 years of retreats at the meditation center, I got another sense of urgency, and I just realized I didn't know what the 
what I was doing. I did not know, I really didn't have any confidence about mindfulness or path, and I wasn't very strongly motivated to do anything else. I was just kind of like going along. I was quite happy to just sit and kind of space in. I wasn't spacing, I was just kind of spacing in. But at some point, after 10 years, I got this message in, in, in my mind. I don't know what's going on, but I want to know. And so I just got so fired up. It was a sense of urgency, like... I was ready to give up. Well, I did. I just said, I'm done with this life. I'm, I was 35. I'm done with this life. I'm not I'm closing my business, and I'm going to practice. That's all I want to do. So I went to Burma, went to the monastery. And in this monastery with Saito Bandita, it was rigorous. You know, you look at the schedule, and it's, they allow you up to four hours of sleep a night. As Upandita used to say, you can sleep all you want between 11 and 3. <laughs> That's it. You know, and they weren't kidding either. Okay, so anyway, I was, I was fired up. That was no problem for me. I mean, it was hard the first couple of weeks, but got into it. And I'd been practicing there for, I don't know, a year and a half, two years. And I remember the afternoon that I was walking on the back side of a, a hallway, this little dormitory, the little place where foreign men used to stay, I was walking, and I was, I was doing the slow, really, really slow walking, and I saw something in my mind I'd never seen before. That's hard enough, to see something you've never seen before in your own mind. It's like, where'd that come from? I saw it, and I go, wow, what's that? So I kept walking, and I, you know, saw it again, saw it again. And what it was, was I was walking, <clears throat> And I was, I had the, the energy of just, you know, just a steady energy. But at some point, I collapsed. Just like, oh. And I had this thought, or there was this, this assumption. It wasn't even a thought. It was like an assumption. A feeling just went through me. I can't do this. I just can't do this. I'm too old. I'm too stupid. I'm too dumb. Uh, I just started too late in life. Whatever, you know, there were just all kinds of, you know, at different times would be different thoughts. You know, I did too many drugs. I just, I'm never going to get out. I didn't do enough drugs. <laughs> there were all kinds of, you know, explanations, rationalizations, whatever, that I felt justified in resorting to collapse. I can't do I can't do this. And I realized, well, this is self-pity. I'm pitying myself. Oh poor me. I can't do this. And I'd never seen that. I'd never I'd never I don't I was young. I was full of it. I had lots of <laughs> mojo or whatever. And I just I, I you know, of course I was pretty stupid, but I had energy to compensate for it. And uh, but I saw this and I said Wow, I've never known myself to to feel self-pity, to feel like I couldn't do something. I always had an unrealistic, overconfident attitude. But now I had to deal with it because it was undermining my effort to practice. It wasn't quite doubt about practice. It was a little bit doubt about myself. So I got really interested in 
wow, what is this? This is I've never seen this before. Mindfulness can expose, can uncover what has been buried forever. Because it remembers to recognize the present moment. You might not have ever been conditioned to recognize this moment. But mindfulness can recognize it. So I got on the case of this. Every time that my mind wanted to resort to, oh poor me, I was right on it, just like, I see you, I see you, I see you. And for some period of time, I don't know if it was a week, a month, or a couple of months, I was on it, where every time my mind tried to go to, oh poor me, when it collapsed, I was, I wouldn't let it. Just wouldn't let it. No. I have never seen it since. And that doesn't, I'm not saying there haven't been conditions in life where I want to say, oh jeez, I give up. There is. I mean, we all, we all have that in our different times in our life. Often. I can't do this. This is too hard. I don't, I don't want to do this. It's not worth it. Whatever. I've never seen it. My mind doesn't go there. This is how insight, or this is how mindfulness exposes insight arrests and eventually we can uproot from our mind these habits. Uproot, meaning they don't come back. This is the path of purification. This is what we're doing here with mindfulness. The fourth uh, spiritual faculty, guiding, controlling faculty, is called samadhi. And it is often translated as concentration. The main factor, the mental factor that's responsible for samadhi or concentration is ekegata, which means gone to one point. Well, unfortunately, concentration is not a very good word for samadhi because samadhi really is a reflection the development of samadhi is dependent upon the continuity of mindfulness. The more continuously mindful you are, the less that the hindrances or the defilements get into your mind, right? Your mind is, is pure, moment to moment. Each moment that you're mindful, there's no, there's no hindrances. The more continuous you're mindful, the more pure the mind is, the more moments the mind is pure. And when the mind is relatively steady, or there's some continuity of that purity, then there's this seclusion of mind. The mind is secluded from outside torments. We're not, we're not, we're not caught in self-pity or aversion or desire or self-judgment or fear or doubt or whatever. We, they just don't get in because the continuity of mindfulness is continuous enough to seclude the mind from these hindering visitors that I spoke about the other night. Okay, now what what has mistakenly been believed about concentration is that you have to focus on one object exclusively in order to concentrate. And that's not what that's not that's not true. What we have to do is be continuous in our mindfulness. 
And in Vipassana, in Samatha mindfulness, or mindfulness to develop stillness and deep concentration or absorptions, yeah, we have an object. We have a single object at the, at the breath, or a color of light, or loving kindness, and we just send our mind to that object over and over and over and over again. Just we don't do we don't notice anything else. We don't anything else calls our mind away. We don't pay any attention to it. We just go back to it. Just keep sending your mind there. Until the continuity of our remembering that object is so steady that the mind is secluded. That's concentration practice. That's samatha practice. But that purity of mind only lasts as long as you keep doing that. Keep sending it to that object. If you go off into other objects, then you get caught up in aversion, desire, doubt, fear, agitation, restlessness, other things. But as long as you're on your chosen object in samatha, you can remain tranquil. You can be secluded. The mind is comfortable. The mind is, uh, the body is comfortable and uh, we feel at ease because the mind isn't having to fend off aversion, desire, fear, doubt, restlessness, depression, doesn't come. That's not what we do in Vipassana practice, though. In Vipassana practice, we're not staying with one object. We're staying with, initially, a primary object, which might be the breath. But then we gradually open our field of attention to notice predominant objects. So we have to be willing to leave the primary object to recognize predominant objects. Now, I mentioned earlier that quite naturally, the mind will notice the most predominant object of the present moment. Subtle breath is no competition for, you know, the pain in the body. So if we insist on staying with the subtlety of the breath, we're going to be struggling in our mind to not notice something that's more predominant. That's called striving. Tightness. Over-efforting. Doesn't lead to tranquility. Doesn't lead to samadhi. On the other hand, if we're able to notice the primary object, but equally notice the predominant other predominant objects when they arise, then the mind is quite fluid in noticing this, then this, then another predominant object, a third predominant object, whatever comes next, can notice. The continuity of awareness or mindfulness is the same. It's just as continuous every moment. But not on one object, it's on changing objects. A breath, a predominant object, a pain, a thought, a memory, a plan, a sound, a sight, an emotion, a thought. It's the continuity of the remembering to recognize that determines the degree of samadhi. So this is Vipassana practice. This is mindfulness for Vipassana practice. The development of what's called Vipassana samadhi. It's samadhi on changing objects. Now why is this important? Because, hey, we learn how to recognize and how to be with, in a, in a non-reactive way, with everything in life. <clears throat> we learn how to be, you know, accepting of, or accommodating of, painful sensations of the body, pleasant sensations of the body. You know, painful memories, 
fantastic, you know, fantasies. It, it, we, we learn to see them and not get entangled in them with aversion, desire, doubt, restlessness. And so in this way we learn to let go. We let go of, we, we learn to open to everything, but we learn not to hold on to it either. Just let it come, let it go. This is the Vipassana practice. We're not holding on to anything. There's nothing, as the Buddha said, there's nothing to be clung to. Nothing. And if we do that, if we, if we practice in this way, developing this kind of samadhi, we will grow in understanding. Now, the understanding we grow into, this is wisdom, the fifth factor. First is we clearly recognize what is the unique nature of each moment's experience. And I mentioned that, the unique flavor, the sabbatha, right? We, we know that, each moment. That's one level of knowledge. Second level of knowledge is we see that everything that arises, arises due to causes and conditions outside of our control. So we see that everything that we experience is conditional. That's the second knowledge. The third knowledge is we begin to understand, we begin to see, we begin to realize that whatever arises passes away. It's impermanent. Anything that's impermanent is not stable as a satisfactory source of our own happiness. That's dukkha. And we see that this all happens without us being able to control it. This is the anatta characteristic. So these three characteristics of all phenomena come into view. All of our experience have these three characteristics. This is the third kind of wisdom that, that grows from mindfulness practice. Now, when you have any of those understandings arise in your mind, the clarity of the flavor of each moment, the mind gets so bright and so enthusiastic and so light, you, you're willing to make, you, you just have a lot more faith, a lot more trust, a lot more confidence in the practice, so you make more effort. And that helps you to see the second level of knowledge, which is conditioning. Things arise due to causes and conditions. And when you understand the conditional nature of things, this also gives you a, a boost of faith, understanding and faith. And when you see the three characteristics, you get even more faith because you've heard teachings of these three characteristics. Now you know for yourself, you see for yourself these three characteristics. There's no denying it. You're on your way. Now you can't stop. You can't roll, you can't turn back the clock. After you see something like that, you, you don't go back to believing the way you used to believe. You have changed the way you have, you used to misunderstand events in life. Now you understand things clearly from your own experience. This is wisdom. It's not knowledge from books. This is wisdom from your own experience, from your own practice. When you have that kind of understanding, all you want to do is practice. Because there's better things ahead, they say, say. You may be experiencing a lot of dukkha, but there's better things ahead. <laughs> okay. There's a lot that could be said, but you got the outline. This is what we're doing here, is developing these five faculties. Faith, or trusting, trusting ourselves, trusting a teacher, trusting the Buddha, trusting our teachings, trusting the practice, 
making effort, having a sense of urgency, being willing to not collapse in the face of whatever arises, being aware, remembering more continuously to recognize the present moment's experience, gradually stabilizing the mind, learning about the present moment's experiences. This is, this is how the five faculties grow. And you can see that gradually they just grow and they support each other in a very cyclic, uh, gradual maturing and they're kept in balance by mindfulness noticing when something gets out of balance. If there's too much energy, mindfulness will notice, calm it down. If there's too much faith and you're not willing to make the effort, mindfulness will notice. If there's too much book knowledge and not enough experiential knowledge, mindfulness will notice and will make the correction for you. This is how we gradually, and it can only be gradually, develop the maturity of our faith and our wisdom in practice. I didn't say a lot. (laughs) Wisdom inclines towards the good, Utejaniya says, but it's not attached to it. It shies away from what is not good, but it has no aversion to it. Wisdom recognizes the difference between what is skillful and what is unskillful, and it clearly sees the undesirability of the unskillful. We really understand the unskillful. This is wisdom. When your understanding of the true nature of things grows, he says, then your values in life will change. When your values change, your priorities will change as well. And through such understanding, you will naturally practice more. And this will help you to do well in life. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.